We've been in Romans now for about a year and a half, and we've been making our way through here verse by verse. It's called expository preaching. If you're new with us, that's where we look at each paragraph, each verse. Sometimes we zero down to a word and, and study that, but it takes the text in units, in paragraphs. And usually my sermon covers a paragraph that sometimes it's so dense in Romans that we have to section the, the sermons up and do two or three on a paragraph. But we've been working our way through this wonderful book. It's not a systematic theology textbook, but it has a lot of theology in it. It's a letter. It's an epistle to the church. And Paul wrote it to the Romans to tell them he's coming to visit and he wants to remind them of the gospel. He wants to teach them what the gospel, of course, is. They already knew the basics of the gospel. They're saved. They're Christians. But he wants to open it up for them and explain the implications of the gospel, why it's needed, how the righteousness of God is revealed to mankind. It's through the gospel. And why that's needed, because everyone's a sinner. He spent many chapters talking about that. Then he came to the, the cross. He came to the atonement. He came to the propitiation where Christ died on the cross to, to satisfy God's wrath against sinners. He came to that point and the end of Romans 3 there where he said that those who have faith in Christ are saved from that wrath that he'd been talking about in Romans 1, 2, and 3. And then he began to defend this idea of salvation through faith alone in Christ alone. And he opened up in chapters 4 and 5 this idea of justification. Justification. Where is it found in the Old Testament even? He looked at that. And then he showed why, again, we all need it because we're all descendants of Adam. We're all sinners. We've inherited not only our sin nature, but that imputation of Adam's sin has been put on our account because he was our head he was our federal head. He was our leader. He was the one representing the whole human race as the first person God created. But Christ comes, and those who have faith in him will get Christ's righteousness imputed to them. And that sin that was on our account gets transferred off. Both our personal sin and the imputation of Adam's sin gets transferred and put on Christ. And now we're declared righteous. And then he goes into chapter 6 and says, here's how you're to live that out. You're to live out this righteousness under grace, under God's grace, denying sin, fighting the spiritual war, and not running back into sin, not living in sin. But in the midst of that, in the midst of 5 through 8, which is about assurance, this question of the law comes up. And that's what we've been looking at in Romans 7, the law. What about the law? Paul, you say we're not under law, but under grace. How can that be? And of course, the Jews, maybe believing Jews, but certainly the unbelieving Jews would have objected here. Paul, you're saying we're not under law? Are you saying that the law is somehow bad? The law is sinful? And so he's been addressing this whole issue of the law and really defending the law in chapter 7. We came last week to 7 verse 13, and I preached a whole message just on how to interpret this passage. I said there's two main views of 7, 13 through 25. The second half of Romans 7 has two different views that are out there in Christianity. One says that this is the believer and he is struggling now under these commandments that he's trying to live in his own flesh at times and he's got this ongoing struggle. And of course, the main evidence there from that view would be Paul is using I in the present tense. 
I am, I am, I am. And then the other view, which is the one that I told you that I take, and I gave reasons for that in the last sermon, is that this is the unbeliever. That Paul started early on in chapter 7 talking about his past when he came to realize the law as an unbeliever and how he died then because of that. Spiritually, he realized what the law meant. It had its impact on his heart. And I argue that he hasn't left that place where he was talking about his past. And now he comes to describe this struggle in vivid detail. And so I gave you the reasons for that last week, as well as the reasons for the other view. If you weren't here then, I encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon. It'll be on the website this week. So now I'm going to go through the passage, taking, of course, the view. I think the context is the biggest argument, by the way, taking the view that this is the unbeliever because of the context before this and even after this and showing you what Paul's trying to do with this passage. So I've entitled the sermon, In Bondage Under the Law. You'll see in the text where I get that title. In in 13 through 20, we'll just look at the first half here. 13 through 20, he's going to make four points about the law. Four points about the law in this final section of chapter 7. Remember, he's defending the law's goodness. You see, the objection is, Paul, you're wrong about the law. And of course, that implies you're wrong about the gospel. And Paul is not going to have any of that. He's going to stand firmly on the word of God. And he, he being an apostle sent by Christ to preach the gospel and to teach the churches, he's going to stand firmly on that gospel. And he's going to say the law is good. So he is defending the law's goodness. He's not teaching wrongly about the law. And that's why he's going into such detail here about it. Then in chapter 8, he will leave that, of course, and we'll look at the Spirit indwelling. So four points about the law. First of all, look at the question here in verse 13. Paul has been setting up the sections of chapter 6 and 7 with a question and then a long explanation. A question, then a long explanation. And these questions, again, are objections. They're objections that, that either somebody really did ask him at some point, or he's expecting they will ask. If he was to come to Rome, he's going to run in, because Rome's a big city, lots of Christians there. He's going to run into someone who has this objection. And here's the question. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? Go back to verse 12. You'll see where he's coming from here. He concludes the previous section of chapter 7. So the law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. He's established that. So the question here is, Did that which is good, the law, become a cause of death for me? This is a connecting verse going into this next section here. And he's saying, or the objector is saying, is it the law's fault I am condemned to die spiritually? This is similar to what he said in verse 7 of this chapter. Go back to verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Because remember, the law comes, and you know what the sinful heart wants to do? It wants to rebel against the law, Paul says. When the law came, and it was clear to him the demands of the law, you know what he did and every sinner does? They rebel against the law, and they produce in their life more sin. And so, does that mean the law is sinful? And he says, may it never be. And he went on to describe that. Now, he's not asking if the law is responsible for sin, but he's simply saying, Is the law the cause of my death? And they heard this message of Paul's gospel, these people did, and they're they're objecting, particularly the Jewish people in the synagogue. Is Paul calling the law sin? Is he saying that it's sinful? 
And he's going to answer very clearly on this. That's the question. Real brief point here. We need to state the question because the rest of this chapter answers that question. That's the context. Not only what he said in 6 and 7. Just know that everything he says goes back to this question. He's not talking here about sanctification. He's not talking about the struggle with the law. He's talking about is the law somehow the cause of my spiritual death? Is it the law's fault? If it's the law's fault, then something's wrong with the law would be the implication. So secondly, now he begins to answer this. First of all, the short answer is sin is the culprit. Verse 13, the rest of verse 13, sin is the culprit. And Paul answers in such a strong way, may it never be. It's the strongest way possible in Greek. God forbid it, he's saying it never, ever, ever, ever could be that the law is at fault for my spiritual death. We can't blame God for people going to hell. People go to hell because of their sin. You can't blame God for breaking his law. People break the law. And it's no fault of God's law. May it never be. So that's the rejection of what they're saying. Now he explains, rather it was sin. Now notice he's in the past tense here. He's still talking about this time before he came to Christ. It was my argument last week. And one of those arguments here is this is in the past tense. It was sin in my life that actually brought about spiritual death. Looking back on his unconverted life, he's saying it was sin, not the law. The law is not at fault. It was sin. He's thinking about his own testimony that he started way back here in verse 9. Now I was once alive apart from the law. I was once at a past time. I was alive. I didn't really understand the law. I grew up as a little child, a Jewish child going to synagogue. I memorized scripture, but it didn't impact me. But when the commandment came, when it came, when it hit him, when he got old enough to understand it, sin revived, resurrected. He thought sin wasn't there. He thought he was a good little boy. And then he hit the teenage years. And then he understood, like every parent who has teenagers understands, like everyone who's been a teenager understands, sin revived. Sin suddenly starts to come out in ways that it did not happen before. And he says, I died. I died. And this commandment, which was supposed to lead to life, I thought it was, was going to lead to life. The commandment I thought was so great, but if I just followed it, it would lead to eternal life. It was found to lead to death for me. It was sin. That did it though. It was his sin resisting the law and multiplying because the law made demands. He's not changing the context here. He's still going on with this previous testimony. He's a believer now as he writes Romans, but he's looking back to that time when he was an unbeliever. And look what else he says in in 13. It was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin working out my death through that which is good. The law is good. The law has a purpose. And he's already covered this, but he's reminding the reader. One of the purposes of the law is to tell us, to show us our sin. You see, it might be shown in order that it might be. That's a purpose statement. One of the purposes of the law, one of the reasons God gave it is so that sin might be shown to be sin but it produces death. It works out death through that which is good. You remember previously in Romans 7, Paul talks about 
how sin uses the law like a military base. It hides and then it comes out and attacks and it uses the law as a weapon against us. And sin takes opportunity with the law. Paul is saying the law showed me how sinful I was before coming to Christ. And then he goes on, he makes another purpose statement. So that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. Through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. The problem is not the law, it's human sinfulness. That's what causes people to disobey God's law. And another purpose here, Paul is saying, is not only that we know sin, but that we understand how bad our sin is. Again, this is just a review, putting together some things he's already taught on in Romans 7 already, but he's reviewing this and adding a new word here, utterly sinful. Now, that's the purpose of the law, to show us how sinful we are, because sin uses the law and it brings about more sin. And we could not say to God, well, I'm not a sinner. I'm not a sinner. God can say, not only are you a sinner from birth, not only are you a sinner before you even realized it, but when you knew what was right and wrong, when you were exposed to the law of God, you sinned all the more. Look at Romans 5.20. 5.20. He's already covered this. He says in Romans 5.20, now the law came in so that, again, a purpose, so that there's a purpose here. The purpose is the divine purpose. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. God gave the law so we would see how sinful we are. And then what do we do? We sin all the more because of it. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. God sent the law. We see the law. We understand the law. We sin against the law even more. We sin against God. And yet God's grace is even more abounding than our sin. It's more abounding. God's grace is so wonderful. He says, by sin, this is what I was talking about with the military base. It takes opportunity through the commandment. And it works out in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Sin taking opportunity. It takes opportunity. It uses the good thing that God has given the law, the commandment. And it makes our sin worse. Sin makes sin worse. Yes, the more we sin, the more we sin the more we sin, and the more we sin until we have Christ and the Holy Spirit. So when sin is confronted with God's standard, the sinner sins all the more. And he says it's utterly. We're going to see how utterly sinful we are. Utterly here is the state of exceeding. The Greek word is the state of exceeding to an extraordinary degree. A point on a scale of extent. It's extraordinary sinfulness. It's extreme. You could translate this as supreme far more, much greater, to a far greater degree. See what he's saying? That through the commandment, sin would become extremely sinful. God wants us to see that. There was an old Puritan who wrote a book. And today it's been retitled because people would misunderstand it. Today you can pick up the Puritan paperback, The Sinfulness of Sin by Ralph Venning. But the original title, I think, really shows us how wicked sin is. The original title, he's talking about sin in this book. He called it the plague of plagues. The plague of plagues because sin infects and it spreads throughout all humanity and it infects all of us, our mind, our body. It's a plague of plagues. And the book is showing that more than any other human pain, more than any disease, more than even death, sin is the most serious of all epidemics leading to spiritual and physical death. 
the sin of sins, the plague of plagues. It is the worst. You know, people say we have problems. A few years ago, everybody was in an uproar about COVID. Now people are worried about the economy and mankind is doing this and and people are shooting and, and those things are evil, of course. But what's the biggest problem that humanity has? Sin. That's what Paul's focused on here. Look at Galatians 3.19. Galatians 3.19. We looked at this briefly last week. I just want to read it to you again. Why the law then? So the Galatians are confused. They think, well, we're Christians. Now we need to get back under the law and and maybe earn some righteousness. And and maybe we're not quite justified. We need some, some circumcision and some law. And maybe to be more sanctified, we need the law. So Paul says, why the law then? Well, it was added because of trespasses. It was added because of sins, having been ordained through angels by the hand of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise has been made. So why was the law brought into the world? Why did God give it? Because of trespasses. And it was there for a purpose until the seed, the the seed singular, that's Christ, would come. And then verse 20, now a mediator is not for one person only, whereas God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. So the Galatians are trying to earn their salvation. We saw this earlier in Romans. People try to earn their salvation by being good, by obeying the law. And Paul says it was never designed to do that. If that was possible, if that was possible, then why would we even need a savior? Why would we need a savior if you could earn it through righteousness? You wouldn't need a savior. God would just say, obey more, do a better job. And yet he sent a savior, didn't he? Look at verse 22. But the scripture, the scripture has shut up everyone under sin. So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The scripture convicts. The scripture lays the burden on the sinner. So that they only can see the only way out of that is Jesus Christ. There's no other way. You can't just keep working for it. You can't just keep struggling against it. And that's where Paul's going to get to by the end of Romans 7 and going into 8. But right now he's describing for us what is going on in the unbelieving heart and mind. And he says the law came so that sin would be shown to be sin. And through the commandment it would become utterly sinful. The law shows the unbeliever who he or she really is. Do you remember, Christian, that time in your life when you were convicted and you knew? You just knew that you needed a Savior. And maybe you resisted for a while. I know I did for a long time. I grew up knowing the Scriptures. I grew up knowing the Bible. I grew up going to church sometimes. I had no problem with what was said in the Bible. You know what my problem was? Submitting to it. Doing it as Paul's going to describe in a minute. It wasn't the knowing. It wasn't even the desire to say that that's a good thing. It was actually submitting and doing it. That was the problem before I was saved. So now let's look at the third point that he makes here. Again, he's still talking about the law, but he's actually giving us the real reason that mankind goes to spiritual death, that the unconverted person goes to a spiritual death. And eventually, that will be a physical punishment in the lake of fire as well. The third one is here, the answer explained. Mankind is fleshly. 
in bondage under sin. So sin's the culprit. What's going on there, Paul? Well, mankind is fleshly under this thing called bondage, under slavery to sin. That's in verse 14. Go back to Romans 7, 14 here. For we know, he says, we know that the law is spiritual. It's not fleshly. It's spiritual. The word for here begins this verse telling us that Paul's explaining what he just said in verse 13. Let me explain it to you how it works because it's all on us, not the law. The law is spiritual. He's not changed subjects here. He's not now talking about sanctification. He's still talking about this law versus flesh issue here. He's saying the law cannot be blamed for our sin. It's spiritual. It did not originate with mankind. Things that originate with mankind would be fleshly, earthly. No, it originates from God. It originates from God, and the word spiritual indicates that it came through the Holy Spirit. The word spiritual here is saying the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, has given the law. It's spiritual. Therefore, it has spiritual ability to do exactly what God has purposed it for. Hebrews 4.12 tells us this, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Only something spiritual could do this. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, and it is piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The law judges us. The law condemns us because it's spiritual, because God uses the law to show us his righteous standard, and it can slice all the way to the heart, to the spirit. Nothing created by man could do that. Nothing created by man could get to the spiritual level and know the intentions of the heart. This is spiritual. And Paul says, look, he says, we know. He assumes that his readers understand this. Look, don't think for a minute that the law is evil, that the law is sinful, that the law is at fault for our death. As unbelievers, the law cannot be blamed. We know. We all know the law is spiritual, he says. That brings his readers into this argument. We already know what the Bible says about this. Now he's going to contrast it. And this is where he starts using the present tense. He's bringing in the contrast here. He says, but I am fleshly. As opposed to the spiritual, the thing given by God, the thing given by God who is holy and righteous and just. I'm fleshly. He switches to the present tense. And I mentioned last week that Scholars believe, and I take this view, that he's making his argument more dramatic by switching to the present tense. He hasn't left the context. He switches the tense, and he starts talking a lot about I, I, I. He's making it more dramatic. It's like a flashback in a movie. He's putting you in the shoes of him when he was an unbeliever. So as a Christian, you think, yeah, I remember that struggle. Praise God, I'm not in that anymore. He's making it very vivid, sometimes called the dramatic present or the emphatic present present tense. We often do this when telling a story. I mentioned an example last week, but we often just go back and we'll tell the story. We're saying it like we're there in the present tense. And I was going and I was doing, and I am, and I'm going up to this person and I'm saying to this person, I think that's what Paul's doing here. And he says, I'm fleshly. I am fleshly. I'm, I'm bound by my own sinful nature. What he means by this is under sin's control. While a Christian can be called fleshly sometimes, like in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says, don't be carnal, don't be fleshly. 
as a Christian, you need to be spiritual. You need to not go back to those fleshly sins. Here, though, the context is different. Go back to Romans 7, 5. For while we were, while we were in the flesh, while we were past tense as unbelievers in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law. So again, there's a contrast there between the fleshly and the law, which is spiritual. So he's saying, I am fleshly. Now I'll go forward. The same word is used in Romans 8, Romans 8, 9. He says, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So I think the context indicates again that he's talking about his unconverted life. And he's saying being fleshly. I'm the furthest thing from spiritual. The law is perfect and good and righteous and it's spiritual. But I'm fleshly. It's a, it's a huge contrast. The ancient world would have really seen this. Many people had the wrong view of the flesh and the body. They said everything that's spiritual is perfect and everything that is created matter is evil. Now, Paul's not saying that. He's not a dualist. He's not a Platonist. What Paul is saying, though, is that where do we act out our sins? In the flesh. The sins come out in the flesh. And those sins are in our flesh. So we can describe the person as fleshly, as carnal, because they're unbelievers in this case, who are at polar opposites of the law, which is spiritual. Being fleshly is the furthest you can get from being spiritual in his comparison. So today, people might say, well, that's a very godly person, but they're very sinful. Well, that's not the way Paul talks about it. I don't think that's the right way we should talk about it. A very sinful person is not being godly. That, that's as far apart as you can get if we were describing a Christian. You would not say a person is completely sinful and completely godly. That's similar to what Paul is doing here. He's saying the law has this characteristic called spiritual, but mankind has a characteristic called fleshly, and they're opposites. You cannot try to put those together. Then he says, having been sold into bondage under sin. What does fleshly mean, Paul? I'm confused because other places he does use it to describe tendencies that a Christian can have towards sin. Well, he describes what fleshly means here. Having been sold into bondage under sin. Sold into bondage. A selling of property, and this property in this case would be a slave. This phrase, starting with the the verb having been sold, and with what comes after it into bondage, indicates slavery. And it says, having been. In the past, I've been sold into bondage to slavery in the past. There's a lot of debate about what he means by this. Probably at Adam's fall, when Adam sinned, the whole descendant, everybody, the progeny of Adam is sold into bondage. You start out life sold into bondage to sin. And so it's pointing to this fact. The old commentator, a Greek scholar, A.T. Robertson said, sin has closed the mortgage and owns its slave. Sold into bondage under sin. Who's the master here? Sin's the master. Who's in bondage? The unbeliever is sold into bondage to sin. 
clearly means the person is in slavery. We can't try to get around that language and say, well, that's not actual slavery and that's just a temporary slavery. And, and when we sin as a believer, we go back into slavery for a few minutes. No, this is bondage to sin. He's already talked about this. Romans 3, 9, we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks, talking about unbelievers, whether they're Jew or Greek, they're all under sin. They're underneath something that has dominion over. They're under sin. Romans 6.22 is the the closest that he's spoken of this. Look at Romans 6.22. But now having been freed from sin. Why do we need to be freed from sin? Because we were enslaved to sin. It was our master. We were in bondage. It was our Lord. But he says now as the Christian, you've been freed from sin. And 6.22. He's talking about the Christian now. And enslaved to God. So you're either a slave of sin or a slave of God. You're either a slave of sin or a slave of righteousness, he says. If you're a slave of God, he says in 622, you're going to eternal life. That's the end. The eternal life. That's the purpose. So this is what it means to be fleshly. Sin controls. It has dominion. It's the master over the person. So that's the problem. The problem is not the law. The law is good. The law is good, it's holy, it's righteous. The problem is within us. The problem is sin, who is our master. And you didn't think about that as an unbeliever. Paul was not thinking about that. Now he's a Christian, he can look back and use Christian language to talk about his unbelieving days. And the Bible makes it clear the unbeliever is in bondage to sin. Now Paul's going to prove this. That's the fourth main point here. The rest of the passage gives proof Of this bondage to sin. So he said, the question is, did the law lead to my death? Is it at fault? And he said, absolutely not. May it never be. It's sin. And then he explained what he means by that. Mankind is fleshly sold into bondage. Well, here's the problem. Just like today, in ancient times, people would have heard that as unbelievers and said, no, I'm not. I'm not a slave to sin. I don't follow Satan. What are you talking about? Pastor, quit talking so negatively. I don't think I'm going to come back to this church if that's the way you talk. Well, that's what people would have said back then to Paul. The Jews, they didn't think of themselves as sinners. The Pharisees certainly didn't think of themselves as sinners. They got mad at Jesus every time he indicated that they were sinners. He said he came to call sinners to repentance and not the self-righteous, not the righteous, the self-righteous who cannot even admit that they sinned. He's saying, Pharisees, you think you're righteous. I didn't come for you. I can't help the person who thinks they're righteous, but I can help the sinner, the person who knows they're a sinner. And the Pharisees looked at everyone else and thought they are the sinners. And so Paul knows this bondage to sin is going to give people problems. So he's going to give some proof now. He's given three proofs on this bondage to sin. First of all, what comes out is not what I want. I've just summarized the statement in verse 15. What comes out is not what I want. He's again putting it in the present tense and putting it on himself so the reader and anybody who comes to this and even an unbeliever who reads this is understanding that he's proving the fact that people are in bondage to sin before they come to Christ. People are in bondage to sin. Whether you want to hear it or not, that's not the question. It is true. It's right here in Scripture over and over. So he says in verse 15, 
For what I'm working out, I do not understand. He's confused. That's what it means to not understand. He's confused. Paul is saying, as an unbeliever, I lived in this state. I didn't know why sin kept showing up in my life. It made no sense to me. So frustrating, he's saying. Sometimes he could do outwardly what the law said. This is what he gets out in Philippians 3. I was the Pharisee of Pharisee, the Hebrew of Hebrews. I did all these things. My parents made sure I was circumcised on the eighth day. I joined the Pharisees. I studied under Gamaliel. I did all these things outwardly. If you looked at Paul as a Pharisee, you would say, that is the best guy that we have on our team. But in his heart, he knew better. In his heart, even as an unbeliever, he knew that he was still in sin. James 2.10 says, Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point. You can do all these things on the outside. And you can do everything that looks perfect to everyone else. And even if you could, 99% of the time, do the right things inside your mind as far as thinking goes and in your heart. One stumble at one point in the law. You break one law. And James says, he's become guilty of all If you break one law, it's as if you broke every law. It doesn't matter. It's the same penalty. It's the same judgment. Without Christ, you are lost. But then, Paul's now saying in his own strength, in verse 15, he's he's trying to obey the law without the Holy Spirit. He's trying to obey the law, but he's failing regularly, and that confuses him. I don't understand. I don't understand, he says. And that explains that more. What is this confusion? For I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. This is what it means to be sold into bondage under sin. You have a master and he wants to do the right thing in his mind, but the opposite thing comes out in his actions because sin is reigning. He's under bondage. He's in sin, under sin. Today, we see this and we think only a believer could want to do the right thing. And that is an argument for this being a Christian struggle. But according to Romans one thirty two and all of Romans 1, really, unbelievers know what is right. They know what is right. They have a conscience. God gave it to them, Romans 2. They know something about God, Romans 1, and yet they still sin, and they celebrate it. They still sin in practice. And the ancient pagan people understood this. We can't just say, well, only a Christian would want to do the good. No, even the pagans in ancient times wrote about this. They wrote about this struggle between wanting to do what they knew was right and then what comes out is evil, what comes out is sin. Ancient writers like Plato, the Greek play Medea, later writers like Seneca, Epictetus, Ovid, they all describe something of this struggle of knowing what's right, wanting to do it, and not being able to do it. Here's what Ovid said. He said, I see and approve the better course, but I follow the worse. I see the good thing that I should do, and I always end up going the wrong direction. The people in Rome that Paul's writing to, they would have known this. They would have known these writers. I mean, some of these writers wrote in Rome, and these were the great literature pieces of the Romans. Ovid, Seneca, Epictetus. So the unregenerate person, they have a conscience. The unbeliever has a conscience. They know what is good. They intend to live right, and they intend not to do that sin that has consequences. Dad, I promise I'm never going to hit my brother again. I promise. You have to believe me. It's never going to happen again. 
Paul grew up, he knew the law. He knew what the law said. He memorized it. He memorized the commandments. I don't know how much of the Old Testament he knew, but he knew a lot of it. He memorized it. Of course, he had the whole thing they could access, but I'm talking about in his mind all the time. He knew a large portion of Scripture, and yet he could not live it out, couldn't practice it. He was struggling with this, what his mind wants to do and what comes out. What I would like to do, I'm doing the very thing I hate. We hear this sometimes in the South. People have been living a life of sin. They know it's bad. They know the consequences of it. And they say, I'm going to get right with the Lord. One of these days, I'm going to get right with the Lord. I'm going to get right with the man upstairs. I'm going to. Go and do the right thing. I'm going to live the right way, the way the good book tells me to. And then they go right back into sin. I've heard that many times. If you grew up in the South, you've probably heard that. It's even prophesied in a few country songs. I'm going to get right with the Lord one of these days. But they just fall back into the same old sin pattern. So that's the first proof. Paul says, look, this was my practice. And the reader is supposed to read this, I think, and understand that they were the same way. Number two. The second proof, this struggle shows the law is good. So the fact that there's even a struggle proves that the law is good. The fact that Paul knows the right thing to do, that's his argument in verse 16 here. He knows there is a right thing to do and he can't do it. That proves the law is good. Here's what he says. But if I do the very thing I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. Paul's saying that the way it worked out in his unconverted days proved that he was in bondage to sin and it's not the law's fault. It's sin and it's him doing the sin. It's not the law's fault. The agreement here, when he says, I agree, don't think of that as just a mental agreement. He's not just mentally agreeing the law is good. Of course, he would have agreed with that. He grew up agreeing with that as a, as a pious Jew. No, he's saying my actions end up agreeing with the fact that the law is good. But what I live out, what I live out shows, it agrees with, it concurs with what God says. That the law is good, but I can't measure up to it. He thought from the time he was a boy, this idea that the law is good. But he realizes in time that he cannot truly live the holy and righteous life. That he knew in his mind was good. He knew that life was good. The Bible says it. You believe the Bible, don't you, little Paul? Yes, I do. He knew it was good, but he cannot live it out. He was fleshly. He was in bondage to sin. He was doing the very thing he did not want. He could have the grandest intentions, but they did not work out to be good. His actions were evil. His actions were evil. Not that society would say his every action was evil, but he knew in his heart that his actions were evil. Even when they looked good, he was doing them for the wrong reasons. Paul had good intentions. Good intentions. But the, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. That's why the Bible always comes back to fruit. Bad fruit versus good fruit. What's your fruit look like? You don't earn your salvation through trying to work on good fruit. But good fruit shows you are saved. Jesus said, if you're part of me, if you're attached to me, you're attached to the vine and you'll produce fruit. If you don't, you'll be snipped off. You'll be cut off. And Paul's saying, I, I want to produce good fruit, but it just comes out as bad fruit all the time. So the fact that he even has these good intentions in his mind, they proves the law is good. Otherwise, where would any of these good intentions come from? 
Do you think sinful man could just make up good intentions and good thoughts? I know we talk about that today, right? Send your good thoughts to this person who's suffering. Anything good in us has to come from God. He's either created us with some ability to know the good, which the Bible says he has, or as Christians, he gives us a lot of the good and his grace. Deuteronomy 4.8 speaks of this law being good, and even the pagan nations knew this. God says in Deuteronomy 4.8, Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I'm setting before you today? The nation is supposed to look at Israel and say, wow, they are living a righteous life. They are living a holy life. That's a holy nation. I want to know who their God is. Even the nations would know that this God's law is good. And Paul is saying that even the unbeliever can see that the law is good. They know that the law is good. They can't live it out. But the fact that they even know it means that the law must be good. Because where did that good come from? Where did that good come from? Romans 2.14. For when the Gentiles do not have the law naturally, they do the things of the law. They don't have the Mosaic law, especially in those days. The pagans didn't have God's word. They didn't have the Old Testament sitting around to read. He says, even though they didn't have that, these not having the actual Bible in their hands, the law are a law to themselves. And that they demonstrate the work of the law written in their hearts. God still has commands for every person that he's created. And it's in their hearts. They know their conscience bears witness. And their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. They know the Gentiles prove the law is good. Because they know what good is. And that comes from God's law. So Paul's struggle between his mind and his flesh when he was an unbeliever, only further proves that the law is good and that mankind is not good, that he is naturally, after Adam, sold into bondage under sin. Third proof, the last one here. This covers verses 17 to 20. Indwelling sin works out evil, not the law. Indwelling sin works out evil, not the law. How do we know? How do we know or in bondage to sin as an unbeliever. How do we know mankind is in bondage to sin as an unbeliever? Well, what comes out is not what I want. Paul says in verse 15, the struggle shows the law is good. And now third proof, indwelling sin works out evil, not the law. So now, verse 17, so now, logical conclusion. So now, based on what I just said, no longer am I the one working it out since sin dwells in me. No longer is not talking about time. He's not shifting now to his believing days. He's saying the logical conclusion is, no longer am I the one working it out, but it's actually sin working it out in me. It dwells in me. He's saying his actions are not a direct result of his thinking, because his thinking in his mind was filled with good intentions. I have these good thoughts. I want to do what's good. I end up doing sin. There's a disconnect. What's the problem here? If everything was perfect and right, I would think it, and then I would do it. I would think the good, I would do the good. There's something else in the equation here, and it's called sin. Sin dwells in me. It lives inside of me. It dwells. It has a home there. Sin has a home inside of me, he said. People today sometimes say, well, it's not my fault. 
Someone else made me do it. That's not what Paul's saying. He's not saying it's sin's fault and I am completely, completely righteous. It's not my fault. I'm in the right on this. He's not doing an excuse. He's not making an excuse like so many do today. Right? Sometimes people will come to you and say, well, the only reason I sinned is because you sinned against me. You made me sin. He's not doing that. He's not blaming something else. He's just saying, we have this body. We have this body that God has created us. We're a person that God has created, mind and body, soul and body, spirit and body, however you want to say it. And there's something there called sin that's been there all along. And it got revived when I understood the demands of the law. And it's working out things in me. It's not making an excuse. He's just saying, here's where the bad comes from. It comes out of us. If he was making an excuse, he'd say, well, that sin, it just kind of came and took over for a second and then it left. Some people say, well, maybe Paul's demon possessed. That's not what Paul's talking about here. He's not demon possessed. He's saying it's within me. It lives there. It has a little home. It dwells. That's what the word means here for dwelling. It's got a little house and it's living there and it keeps messing up my life. I want to do the good and it comes out sinful. It comes out evil. That's what it means to to be under bondage. Sin is the master. Sin has a home. It reigns over the person, the unbeliever, the slave, the unconverted man. He desires to do the good thing, but his master won't let him. All this talk about free will. Yes, the unbeliever has a lot of willpower, and the willpower is capped by sin. The master called sin only lets the unbeliever do so much when it comes to choices. But they cannot choose to do the good like the believer can over in Romans 8, 7. Look at Romans 8, 7. Not only do they choose to do the good, but they live it out. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. The unbelieving fleshly person cannot subject themselves, put themselves under the law of God and live it out. It's not even able to do so. And those who are in this flesh are not able to please God. They're not able to please God. Why is that? Because sin is dwelling, sin is reigning, and sin limits them. They're not even able. They don't have the ability. And if you go to 1 Corinthians 2, it says they don't even want to do it. So there's both a, a lack of desire often and this lack of ability. Now, Paul is saying, I was wanting to do it, but I could not make it happen. He dreams of doing the good, but the master called sin will not let the slave do it. The master is within his own heart, he says, it's within me. And now he restates the argument in verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me. Nothing good. Not even the Holy Spirit. Nothing good because he doesn't have the Holy Spirit yet. He's talking, I think, about his unbelieving life. Nothing good. And that's in my flesh. He clarifies it. He says, God is good and God created mankind as the pinnacle of his creation. And we're made in the image of God. So that fact is good. We're made in the image of God. But as far as my body and my flesh and my earthly life is concerned, there's nothing good in me. I want to do the willing is present in me. I want to do the good, but the working out of the good is not. It's not there. The production of good fruit is not there. If the Holy Spirit was there, Romans 8 will say, you can produce good fruit. You can kill that sin that's still remaining. There's a little bit of sin still there. You can work on killing that. Here, there's, there's nothing. 
There's, I cannot. I'm not able. Verse 20, again, repeats this argument. It's like Paul wants to drive home the point, right? Parents, why do you keep having to repeat things to your children to drive home the point? Pastor, why do you keep repeating yourself? Hopefully it's because I want to drive home the point, right? And don't just forget what I'm supposed to say and repeat myself. He's trying to drive home the point. Verse 20, I'm doing the very thing I do not want, and I am no longer the one working it out, but sin which dwells in me. It's not the law that's the problem. It's sin. We are under bondage to sin. He proves that through these three arguments. Here's what the commentator Frank Thielman says. His flesh is so devoid of good. And sin has settled down so completely in his flesh that if sin were a person and his human existence were a territory, sin would be fully in control, producing the evil that it wants rather than the good that Paul wants to accomplish. This is a man who is under bondage to sin and he's not able to do the good things that he knows in his mind are right to do. However, if you're in that situation, don't try to strive even more. We don't try to strive even more against the law. Turn to Christ. He's going to get so desperate in this description. Look where he goes in verse 24. I just want to remind you of the good news here because it can't all be just the bad news. Verse 24, he says, wretched man that I am. Who's going to deliver me? And then he can't wait till chapter 8. He just says, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Then verse 8 starts after he does a summary and the rest of 25. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What's the solution? Not try harder, not work harder, not keep thinking, well, I've got good intentions. My intentions were right, God. Please consider my good intentions even though I sinned all this time. No, that's not the answer. The answer is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who sends his spirit, and his spirit indwells the believer, and his spirit produces good fruit. And you have the fruit of the spirit, like Paul talks about in Galatians. So if you find yourself in this constant battle with the law, this constant struggle, knowing that you're condemned, feeling that you're condemned, get counsel from us, get counsel, talk to me, talk to Frank, but realize You need to look to Christ. He's the only solution. We're not under law as Christians. And if you're not a Christian, you are under law. It sits on you. It's a heavy weight on your chest. That's why it feels like you can't get out from under it because it is weighing you down. You'll never be able to earn any righteousness by obeying the law. Turn to Christ. Turn to Christ. Lord, we thank you for this passage. It's been a a challenge to all of us as we look at it and Try to see what Paul is saying here. We're 2,000 years removed, and we're looking back, and we're trying to look through the Scripture here and, and use good hermeneutics and good exegesis. But ultimately, we can all agree, Lord, that the law is good. The law is good, and it condemns us, and it shows us our sin, and we sin all the more, and yet Christ frees us from all of that. We're under grace as a Christian. We thank you for that, Lord. What we could not do, Christ did. What we could not do in the flesh, Christ came and he did for us. We thank you for that. We thank you for that good news. And we long to see Christ personally, to be with him, to even as the believer has just a bit of remaining sin that we struggle with, we we long to be with Christ and be free of all of that. Thank you, Lord. For Jesus Christ, who came to die for sinners, in his name, amen.